0: Everyone. Thanksgiving, North Carolina, for the most part. Um, We have a lot to be thankful for, though. It was really good for me to just reflect this week and think of the amazing blessings that God has given us. Uh, Sometimes we just need to stop and just remind ourselves of the things that we should be thankful for because we forget. We start taking things for granted. And God deserves. Thanksgiving from his people. Have a little background music here. So we've been going through 1 Peter for the last um, six weeks or so. Uh, Last Sunday we took a break from that. We went to Psalm 2. And this week we are back in chapter 3. So if you want to just grab your Bibles and stand with me, we're going to read verses 13 through 22 we're kind of zeroing in on verse 18 through 22 today. Um, there's a lot there to unpack um, but we'll be covering from verse 13 where we left off two weeks ago to verse 22. So first Peter chapter 3 verse 13 Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake you will be blessed. have no fear of them, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You can be seated. So... Peter is talking a lot about suffering, how we suffer, what our mindset is in suffering. In fact, there's a verse at the end of chapter four that I think just kind of summarizes the message of this book. It, uh, chapter four, verse 19 says this. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So as we are living, as we're doing good, we're trusting God not in spite of our suffering, but through our suffering, because of our suffering, because we see the outcome of it. And we just saw in the beginning of chapter 3 how he gave us uh, some specific instructions, practical instructions for how that works out in our life. And now we see in, in verse 13 where he um, kind of turns a corner and, and takes a close-up look at our suffering. And more specifically, he gives us... A well-grounded reason for our suffering, um, as we're going to see from verse 18 through 22. I'm really excited about this part. I think it's uh, a, a really important part of the book. And there's some wonderful truths in here that we're going to see today. So he starts out, who is there to harm you? If you are zealous for what is good, and if you read the rest of the book, you'll realize that this is probably a rhetorical question because he's already said that you are going to suffer, expect suffering. In fact, don't just expect suffering because other people are mean, but because of God's purposes in your life, you can expect to suffer. So he says, if you're zealous for what is doing good, who is there to harm you? Well, lots of people. There's lots of people that are going to harm you. Um, and Jesus told his disciples, I'm sending you out into the world as sheep among wolves. I don't know if you've, if you can uh, get a picture of what happens when sheep go out into like among wolves, guess what's going to happen. The wolves are going to turn on the sheep. They're going to attack them. He said, that's how it's going to be for you guys. When you go out, you're going to be like sheep among wolves. Beware of men. They'll deliver you to courts. They're going to um, flog you in the synagogues and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before the Gentiles. And you'll be hated by everyone," he said, "for my name's sake. But when that happens, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed." Um, Matthew five, Jesus said the words that we're all familiar with: "Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake." And that, that word "blessed," um, some translations I think put it as "happy." It means it means you're well off, you're fortunate. I think happy might be a weak translation because we often think of that as an emotion rather than as an actual state of being. Like you are well off if you're evil spoken of and mistreated. Um, And in chapter four, Peter repeats this idea. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of Christ rests on you. So he says, have no fear of them. When this happens, don't be afraid. Echoing Jesus teaching again in in Matthew chapter 10 where he says, Don't fear those who can kill the body but have no no power over the the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Um, In fact, he said, Don't even worry what you're going to do when you find yourself in a situation of hostility. Don't worry what you're going to say because uh, the, the spirit of your father speaks through you and he will give you in that moment what you need to say. So, a position of confidence in the face of opposition. Verse 15, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Or you could say, sanctify Christ as Lord. Set Him apart in your heart as Lord. Do you know what lies on the opposite side of the spectrum of being afraid for yourself, afraid of those who persecute you and speak evil of you? On the opposite side of that is Honoring Christ as Lord, setting him apart as holy, having a right view of who Christ is that that's on the opposite end of the spectrum from fear and self-protection. There's nothing that will equip us for suffering, like having a view of who Christ is, what he suffered, what he accomplished through his suffering, his triumph over suffering, his glorified state at the right hand of God. In your hearts, set him apart as holy, because this is what will take you through suffering victoriously. On the other hand, idolatry kills our ability, our ability to suffer for the sake of Christ. When you love anything else in the place of Christ, the cost of suffering begins to outweigh its benefits. Fact. I can see it so plainly in my own experience, my own life. When I start elevating something else into the place that only Christ should occupy, suffering becomes so much more difficult. I begin to love my reputation, success, money, whatever it is that's that's getting a hold of your affection. It will make triumphant suffering difficult, if not impossible. Christ needs to occupy that place, that place that affection, that place of being set apart as holy so that we can live victorious through suffering. That's why we sang the song, I won't bow to idols, I'll stand strong and worship you. And if it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice because you're there too. I won't be formed by feelings. That's another thing that can take that spot that Christ should occupy, our feelings. I won't be formed by feelings. I'll hold fast to what is true. If the cross brings transformation, then I'll be crucified with you. Because death is just the doorway into resurrection life. And if I join you in your suffering, then I'll join you when you rise. That was Peter's message. If you suffer with Christ, you'll be glorified with him. So look, take a close-up view of his suffering and what he accomplished through that. Christ must be supreme, honored in our hearts as holy. That's what verses 18 through 22 do for us. They will give us a right view of Christ, his triumph over suffering, as as we're going to see in a minute. So he says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So your hope, your demeanor, your disposition as you encounter hardship is going to get people's attention to the point where they ask you questions about it. And he says, you need to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you. The, the word there, defense, is uh, could be like a legal defense. It's not just, it's not just your, your feelings or an idea that you have, but your hope is in fact defensible. It's not unfounded. You can defend it not just based on your experience or on how you feel about it, but on objective truth. I remember um, I was uh, talking to a guy on a a flight from Peru one time, and I was telling him about what Jesus had done for me and how that changed my life and my experience and my, I guess, my feelings, how it had affected me. And he had this... Amazing comeback. He was a new age guy. He didn't believe in in God at all. Um, But he told me that since he just discarded everything that he had believed about God and all that stuff and had gotten into this new age um, belief that he was now exercising and practicing and developing in his life, he had the most amazing transformation through this. He had peace that he didn't have before. He was so happy, and he's like, "Hey, I'm glad. I mean, if that works for you, I'm I'm happy for you." But this, he had the most marvelous testimony, and I was caught off guard. And I realized later why, at least part of why I was caught off guard with his testimony. I think part of it was this: that my defense for the hope that was in me was based too much on my experience. And what I perceived that it had done for me in experience and in in my emotional perception of it, rather than truth. You know what I didn't tell him? Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Peter is basically saying, this is the defense for your hope. And it's, it's a defense that's not just based on your experience or your emotions or how you perceive it. But it's based on rock solid truth. Because you can look back and you can see how Christ triumphed through his suffering. That's what it's all about. The righteous for the unrighteous. For sin. Once for all. So that he might bring us to God. That is a rock solid defense for our faith and for the hope that is in us. Yet, very wise for him to put this caveat in here, yet do it with gentleness and respect because you can give a defense for the hope that is in you in a way that is not done with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So, the inference is that you can do it with arrogance or, or boastfulness instead of with gentleness and respect. Boldness coupled with gentleness and respect. Like Jesus said, you need to be wise as serpents but harmless as doves. Having a good conscience. In other words, don't let the message of the hope that is in you, the defense of the hope that is in you, don't let that be compromised by reckless disrespectful behavior. And I could give you lots of examples of my life in in how that the message of the gospel has been undermined by reckless behavior. It's true. That's maybe the most challenging part of giving a defense of our hope is living lives that are above reproach so that those who are against you, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, may be put to shame. They have nothing to say. They can look at your life and they're like, what can you say? Their life lines up with the defense of their hope that they're giving. Verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And here's kind of a pivotal point in Peter's case for suffering. If you're going to suffer, know that unlike the consequences for evil actions, suffering for what is right is good. It's better in every way. And here's how we can know that beyond any reasonable doubt. Look at the ultimate example of suffering for what is good. Look at Christ. Look at his suffering. And it leads us into verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I love this verse. I think it is such a beautiful summary of the gospel right there. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. It echoes... Verse 21 in chapter 2 where he said Christ also suffered for you leaving an example that you might follow in his steps. So suffering is a means of identifying with Christ, but not just in the same way that you might say Buddha suffered so you can suffer. It's not just a means of identifying just for the sake of being like another person, but this suffering that we see in Christ had ultimate purpose. Divine, sovereign, perfect purpose. And the point that Peter's making is look at the triumph of Christ's suffering and realize that the outcome of your suffering will mirror that. And he details that purpose with a stunning example of of what Christ accomplished through his suffering. Christ also suffered... Some translations say died and and early manuscripts are split on this to the point where it, it could go one way or the other. The point is the same. There's two inseparable components of what Jesus accomplished on the on the cross through his suffering that led to death. It was ultimate suffering that led to death. He suffered once it was final. It was sufficient. First John 2 says he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. In one single event of suffering leading ultimately to death, he accomplished salvation for the entire world. He paid the price for the sins of the entire world in that one sacrifice. And as he was taking his last breath, some of his final words were, it is finished. He would never have to die again. He would never have to offer another sacrifice to add to what was accomplished right there in that moment. Hebrews 7 says it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained. Perfect. Separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those former high priests to offer sacrifice daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all. There it is again. Once for all when he offered up himself. Beware of anything that undermines the sufficiency of a once for all sacrifice. I think maybe this is one of the most devious things that the enemy does in, in most of us as believers. Any way possible that he can get us distracted, get us to add something, get us to take away something from this once-for-all sacrifice. That is his primary objective. you know why? Because it was the greatest triumph over evil that ever existed. I think about that we are we are right now living in a very, very small segment of time sandwiched by eternity, eternity past and eternity, eternity future. And if you look at the gospel, the message of the gospel, God is saying this is the greatest display of my glory and of who I am throughout all eternity. Kind of surreal, isn't it? What we're living in this moment. And if you look at what God accomplished through the suffering of Christ and what He is accomplishing through our lives, through our experiences, our suffering, it changes our perspective. For Christ, Hebrews 9, for Christ has entered into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to had suffer, have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. He's saying if this once for all sacrifice would not be enough, then there would have to be an ongoing sacrifice of suffering. And that is not the case. He suffered once for all. To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man once to die. And after that comes judgment. So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. That is the whole world will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For those who believe in the once for all sacrifice that he made. He died for sin. It was the ultimate purpose of his suffering: was to overcome sin, to destroy its power, to once and for all overcome the forces of evil, sin, death, and hell. Romans eight three: for what God has done, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending His own Son. In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. His death put an end to sin, to the power of sin. The righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous died for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. So substitution, he suffered and died in our place. uh, 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake he made him to be sin- who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's the exchange. He became sin for us. And in in, in a little bit here, we're going to see um, why that was so important. He became sin so that we who did not know righteousness could be made righteousness. He who knew no sin was made sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This was because we could not. There's no way that the unrighteous could expiate for the sins of the unrighteous. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. Romans 5 says, while we were still weak, that is, incapable, unable to help ourselves, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good reason one would dare even to die, but God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God, so that he might bring us to God. That's the purpose. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The ultimate purpose of his suffering is to take us, who were far away from God, who were spiritually dead, separated from God, and bring us into relationship, union with God, who is life so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5. Now we get to verse 18. 18, The last half of 18. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, Eight persons were brought safely through the water. So it's kind of unfortunate that there's a verse division between eighteen and nineteen, because what we do is we we read, we read verse eighteen and we're like, wow, that's a glorious truth. The righteous dying for the unrighteous, putting away sins so he might bring us to God. And then we stop and, and then we start reading verse nineteen, and we're like, Whoa, this is really weird. This is a little confusing. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Now, this is a difficult passage, and, and I expect it will still be a difficult passage when we leave here today. So, just want to put that out there. Um, I, don't, I don't expect to, you know, comprehensively work this out to where you never have questions about what some of this means. But, there's a beautiful truth in here that sometimes gets missed in in the the muck and the fog of what this might mean and might not mean. And rather than looking at all of the different interpretations that are commonly held on this verse, uh, we're going to look at one specifically that I think fits the passage perfectly. I think it fits both the context here what what Peter is saying through this passage and it fits with the rest of scripture with second Peter, with Jude, with Hebrews. Um, there's other passages that fit into this view of it. Uh, Dr. MacArthur preached a wonderful series back in the 80s on this passage, and and I really felt like it brought a lot of clarity, um, so I'm I'm really grateful for his input in this. I, I wrestled with this for a while. Uh, that's why we kind of went to Psalm 2 last week, because I just wasn't sure on uh, some of this, but I felt like... This week, not only the not only the, the mechanics of like, you know, what does this word mean? Who is this referring to? Where was that? Not only that became clearer, but like the, the central focus of what is being said here um, became a lot clearer to me. So I'm grateful for that. I think that um, probably the most important piece of the puzzle is to not, Lose the central theme of of this whole passage. Peter was making the point that Christ's suffering and death gloriously fulfilled and revealed God's purposes in that he triumphed through suffering. Not in spite of it, but because of it, through it. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, this is referring to what he just said in verse 18 where Christ was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. Put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed his spirits in prison. So when was he put to death in the flesh? That's relatively straightforward. We know that he was crucified and he bodily, physically died for sin. That word has, that word, died has the nuance of not just like dying in your sleep of natural causes but of a of a violent death being put to death he was put to death in the flesh he was killed he was put to death at the hands of criminals so this isn't too hard to understand he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit what does that mean well it could mean that he was made alive in the spirit of god or by the holy spirit there's not a way to differentiate between capital S spirit and small s spirit. So it could mean that that the spirit of God raised him. But that would mean that he was raising him physically from the dead, right? Because he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, contrasting the fact that he died in the flesh. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me that 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 would be saying he was put to death in the flesh, but then he was raised in the flesh. Flesh by the Spirit, but I think there's something else that He's contrasting here. That while He was put to death in the flesh, He triumphed in being made alive simultaneously in the Spirit. He didn't cease to exist when He died bodily; He still lived in the Spirit. In fact, that was the whole point of conquering sin and death. In that, His Spirit was made alive. Through his bodily death. So when was he made alive in the spirit? Doesn't that infer that he died spiritually? And we know what spiritual death is, right? It's separation from God as a result, a consequence of sin. Remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross, what he cried out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Spiritual Death. Why? Because he was made sin. And sin cannot be in the presence of God. He experienced, he tasted death. Not only bodily, physically, but spiritually, he tasted death. However, Jesus knew that his spiritual death, his spiritual separation from God, was very temporary to accomplish the purpose of being made sin so that he could destroy sin through his death. Because sin would have no more dominion over him. So it was during this event, or in concert with this event of being physically put to death because of sin, but spiritually made alive because of triumphing over sin, that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. As his body, was put to death. The power of sin was destroyed. And his spirit was made alive, reunited with God the Father through the spirit. So where was Jesus during this time when his body was still physically very much dead? And no, he wasn't just in a coma in, in the coolness of the tomb waiting for, uh, for a little breeze to revive him he was dead he was bodily physically dead and in that time his spirit was no longer dead remember what he said just before he died father into your hands i commit my spirit he knew he was going his spirit was going back to god back to union with god isn't that a glorious truth that through his physical death as he was destroying sin through physical death, his spirit was made alive and reunited with God. And that's exactly what we experience. As we die with him as our old man dies with him, our spirit is made alive and united with God. So in the witch, in which being made, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, he went and preached or proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, who are these imprisoned spirits? We do know a few things about them. They were in captivity. They were bound in a in a place of imprisonment. They were disobedient during the time of Noah while God was patiently waiting for people to repent. These spirits were disobedient to God. They were singled out as recipients for this proclamation from Christ during this time when his body was put to death, but his spirit was alive, they were singled out as needing a special proclamation of what Jesus had just accomplished. And some people think they were the humans who perished in the flood, that the message of Christ's victory was either proclaimed to them as an indictment of their disobedience and unbelief or Some say even as yet another opportunity to repent. Now, now I think the second option does not fit with the rest of Scripture, where it teaches that our opportunity for agreeing with God, for repentance, is in this life. And I think the first option seems odd, because what did the people of Noah's day do to merit yet another proclamation of righteousness? You know what was happening during the entire time that, that... Noah was building the ark. He was preaching righteousness. The ark was a boat for one year. But it was a sermon for all the decades that it was being built. Noah was proclaiming, preaching righteousness to the people. And you know what's amazing? That of all those people No one outside of Noah's immediate family thought that God was worthwhile listening to or that this message of righteousness was worth hearing. Another reason that I don't think it's talking about the humans that perished in the flood is that spirits is generally used to refer to angels unless it's given with a qualifier like where it says uh, the spirits of just men made perfect is generally speaking of of angels, either angels in heaven, the elect angels, or the fallen angels, demons uh, that are on earth, and I think that these spirits who received this proclamation were fallen angels from before the flood. And the more I look at this passage and other passages that relate to it, the more I think this view makes a lot of sense. Uh, we'll look at why. Most importantly, I think it fits. Perfectly with what Peter was saying through this passage. The triumph of Christ's suffering. Now, Peter drops the line here. He, he went and preached to the spirits in prison as though he expects his audience to understand what, what he's referencing. And this isn't the only place that this happens. Later in, in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 2, he says, "...for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness..." To be kept until the judgment. And if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others. So he's tying this to Noah and the flood. And then he turns to Sodom and Gomorrah. And in Jude, we have a similar reference to the same thing. Jude 6, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. I think some translations say they're, they're proper abode he has kept in eternal chains same language eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day and then he turns to Sodom and Gomorrah and their destruction because of their immorality and their um, their perverted unnatural desires so Jude is actually quoting directly from the book of Enoch a, a book that gives an account of the events in Genesis Uh, Genesis chapter 6, and that was pretty widely read and known during New Testament times. The Jews um, were familiar with it, and Peter's audience and Jude's audience would have been familiar with it. It's also referenced in Hebrews. So Jude is quoting directly from here. Peter uses language that's very similar, and it seems like he expects his audience to simply know what the story is. Genesis 6 verse 1 says this, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they choose, any they chose. These sons of God, these sons of God were believed in Peter's time and in the first two or three centuries of the, of the early church to be fallen angels who had left their proper dwelling, who had stepped outside of the boundaries that God had set up for them and they took themselves human wives and contaminated human offspring with this demonic hybrid, however that works. Consequently, because they stepped outside of their their God-given boundaries, God imprisoned them. He subjected them to chains, imprisoned in gloomy darkness awaiting the judgment of the great day. You, you might say, don't all demons... Overstepped their bonds their, their bounds. In a in a sense, yes, they they've all been they've all fallen from their previous glory because they rebelled against God. However, even in their in their operating in the world, they have boundaries that God has set up. And he says, You can go so far and no further. And these demons, these fallen angels during Noah's time, had stepped outside of the boundaries that God had placed on them, mingling with humans, corrupting their offspring. You know, Hebrews says something like, God doesn't help the angels, but he helps the sons of Adam. He promised redemption to the sons of Adam, to humans, but not to the angels. So what a great plan to corrupt human offspring to a point where humans are no longer redeemable. And because they overstepped their bounds, God subjected them to captivity, to chains of gloomy darkness. Both of the accounts in Second Peter and Jude go from referencing these angels to, to talking about Sodom. You remember what happened in Sodom when the angels came to visit Lot and to warn him, warn him of the judgment that was to come on the city. You remember the men, it says all the men of the city were gathered around Lot's house because they were so corrupted and depraved, lusting after other men that they saw these angels and they demanded that Lot send them out so that they could rape them. That was the level of depravity and sin that they had fallen to. And they were doing the same thing that the angels did. Back in the time of the flood, the sons of God, lusting after strange flesh. And God so hated that sin, that that depraved wickedness, that in the time of Noah, he wiped out the entire population of the earth with a flood. And in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, he wiped out the entire city of Sodom and Gomorrah with fire. They overstepped their bounds. Genesis says that the Lord looked down and he saw the condition of man, how that the earth was filled with evil, filled with violence, and it says he regretted that he had made man. And he grieved him to his heart. But he didn't destroy the earth without giving humans a chance. 120 years or so before the flood, he said, I'm going to destroy the earth. My spirit isn't always going to strive with man or or be a shield for man. His days are 120 years. Your end is coming. The clock starts now. And in all of that time of preaching righteousness, no one, no one believed it. Except for Noah and his family. Eight people. They entered the ark. They were brought through the judgment. And they were spared. So Christ went and proclaimed. It makes sense from this perspective that these demons that were no longer roaming the earth and that couldn't witness the events that had just occurred of Christ dying, being made a sacrifice for sins, conquering Satan through his death, that Christ would go and proclaim his victory to them since they were in captivity. In chains, under gloomy darkness, reserved for judgment at the great day. This word proclaim can mean to herald. Like military generals who would come back from winning a war, they would send heralds out throughout all the towns and cities to proclaim their victory, to establish their dominion over their conquered territory, to assert their dominance, to let everyone know what had happened And what the implications of that victory would be for the future. And so Christ heralded the ultimate triumph over evil when he went and proclaimed to spirits in prison. And Peter is saying, now would you look at that outcome? Look at the outcome of Christ's suffering. Ultimate victory over evil. Verse 21, baptism. Which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. You see it? He went up to heaven, but before he went up to heaven, angels, authorities and powers The entire realm of darkness subjected to him because of his victory on the cross. Baptism corresponds to this, to Noah and his family being rescued from judgment. They weren't just miraculously transported to another planet. They didn't go to Mars and hang out there for a year while God destroyed the earth. But rather, God had them build an ark which served as a message of righteousness to the people who saw it. And they entered the ark, which was then immersed in judgment. The floodwaters beneath, rain coming down on top of it. The ark went through the judgment, surrounded by destruction. It passed through judgment safely. Baptism, immersion, that's the word, immersion into Christ corresponds with this. We die with him. You see that connected to the victory that he just demonstrated through his physical death on the cross. While he was made alive in the spirit. We die with him. We pass through judgment with him vicariously. Not as in it saves us. Not as in removing the, the dirt from the body. Not as in removing sin physically from our body. But as a, an appeal to. ...to God for a good conscience. Listen to this. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus didn't stay dead... ...but because he was made alive... ...in a a demonstration of his victory... ...we pass through his death and judgment. We're baptized with Christ. We die with him through baptism... And we're made alive on the other side of that, with him, through his resurrection. I I just love this analogy. We're appealing to God for a good conscience, conscience. The legal and moral implications of our sin are disposed of through the death of Christ. As we die with him, as we pass through judgment with him. And we come out on the other side of that, made alive through his resurrection. But he doesn't even end here. There's ultimate triumph who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, the place of authority. The right hand of God is always a place of authority and victory and conquering. He is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Colossians two says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. God is, triumphed over all the forces of evil and he put them to open shame. He made a display of them through the victory of Christ. That's what Peter is saying. Look at the victory that Christ accomplished through his suffering and death. That's why we can suffer with him. Not just because... We think it would be neat to have a similar experience like Jesus had. But because we see the outcome of suffering, we see that ultimate triumph came through Christ's suffering and death. Since then, chapter 4, verse 1, Since then, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Suffering is in the eternal and sovereign purposes of God. And we see that he used it in his grandest plot. Conquering all of sin. For the whole world. Conquering the powers of darkness. Authorities. Demons. Angels. Subjecting all of them. To his authority. Through the suffering and death of Jesus. Suffering precedes glory. Just as death precedes resurrection. Suffering. Proceeds glory. 2 Corinthians 4 says this. We always carry in the body the death of Jesus. We're living out this death through our suffering. Through our identifying with him in the way we live. So that the life of Jesus may also be made manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Paul saw, saw that clearly. Suffering, death, precedes glory and resurrection. Philippians 3, he said, So that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, being made like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In chapter 5, Peter says this, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then there's a verse in Second Corinthians 4 that I just absolutely love. And I know we've brought it up before in this book, but I, I just think it fits so well with the theme of First Peter for this light momentary affliction, light momentary affliction is preparing for us. The light momentary affliction is the thing that is preparing for us. It's not just an incidental. It's not just an unfortunate happenstance that you happen to be walking through a fiery trial. It is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And nowhere can we see that more clearly than in what the outcome was of Jesus' suffering. That's what Peter's saying. Look at Jesus. Look at the outcome of His suffering. Look at what He accomplished through that. Look at the triumph over the powers of darkness. Look at the fact that He died once for all. That He Eliminated the power of sin through his suffering and death and subsequent resurrection. The righteous for the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God. And when you encounter difficulty, opposition, suffering, discomfort in your life, you can look at the suffering of Christ and the outcome of that and you can say with confidence, that is what God does through suffering. That's what he does through trials. That's what he does through whatever he has placed in front of you. He's working an exceeding, eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let's pray. God, we thank you for what you are accomplishing through our suffering and as we look at the suffering of Christ and we, what he accomplished through that, what you accomplished through his death on the cross, we see the glory that comes after suffering, after death. We see that resurrection follows death. And we know that because we have died with Christ, we will also rise with him. And we know that because we suffer with him, we will experience so much greater a degree of glory when we are with Him. God, just enable us to see this in the sufferings that we encounter in our daily life, even the small things, where we tend to get bogged down with the situation itself and we don't see the the glory that You are working through our trials. Help us to look squarely at Jesus, to always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us, the hope that rests on what Christ has accomplished for us. Thank you for your great love that you demonstrated to us through Jesus Christ. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.